You can be opening your Bible with me to the book of Zechariah, next to the last book in the Old Testament, just before the book of Malachi. And I think you're going to be glad you're here on this cold December Sunday, because in this book is, in my opinion, one of the most powerful and beautiful descriptions of why Jesus came that's found anywhere in the Bible. And who would think that teaching from the minor prophets in the Old Testament would be a great passage about Christmas? Now, we're going to build up to it. And I'm going to start there. So follow with me, and I think you'll catch the impact of what this beautiful and powerful passage has uh, to teach us. But I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. Have you ever found yourself in life feeling frustrated? Some of you. All right. Have you ever been discouraged? Have unexpected things happened that knocked you for a loop? Life is not always easy, is it? So what do you do in those moments? How do you deal with it? How do you handle it? A couple of weeks ago, the Saturday following uh, Thanksgiving, there was a couple in Ohio who were married in, a, in, in one place late in the afternoon, and then they were, like a lot of couples do, driving to another place for their wedding reception where they'd have their first dance and the meal and et cetera. But while they were on the, on the highway to the reception, all of a sudden traffic came to a screeching halt. In front of them had been a multi-car accident, and traffic ended up being stopped for hours. And after about an hour, as the bride and the groom were sitting in that car, and he's in his tux, and she's in her, in her wedding gown, can you imagine what they were thinking, what they were feeling? When a stranger who'd been looking at her wearing that wedding gown, sitting there in that traffic jam for an hour, went over, struck up a conversation, and asked, you know, what was, you know, got the story, and, and asked, what would you be doing at this moment if you weren't here? And they said, we'd probably be having our first dance. So that stranger came up with a great idea. Why don't you have your first dance here on the highway? They got out of the car. They were good sports. A crowd gathered from all the other stopped automobiles. Someone uh, took a device and opened up Pandora and, and uh, found uh, the Allison Krauss song, When You Say Nothing At All, beautiful love song. And that, that was playing. And here this couple who'd just gotten married had their first dance on the highway in the middle of a traffic jam with a few friends and family but a lot of strangers watching. See, life doesn't always go the way we expect, does it? And the thing is, there's no way for us to anticipate when those unexpected things are going to happen. Or maybe it's something you were anticipating, but it's still challenging in life. The truth is, all of us need encouragement. All of us need to, in those moments, not only be encouraged, but keep our focus right, keep our attitude right. And if you do, God gets you through it. And on the other side, God can bring good out of bad. This, this young couple who had gotten married, by the way, somebody going the opposite direction, you know, the, the lane that wasn't blocked, the other side of the, of the road, stopped, and he carried her not over the threshold into their new home, but over the, the, the guardrail, the thing in the middle of the, of the road, 
got her in that vehicle, and they eventually got them to their, uh, to their uh, reception. So God always makes a way for us if we keep our focus right and our attitude right as we're going through these challenging, challenging times. And what I want to say to you is that if you'll really listen to what God is saying to the prophet Zechariah, I think you can learn some things. Now, Zechariah was born in Babylon, and you'll remember that Babylon had conquered Jerusalem, Judea, destroyed the city, and carried away a large part of the population as slaves. Well, he actually was born in in Babylon. And when he was a, a young boy, he returned to Jerusalem with that first group of exiles that came home. He returned with his grandfather because his dad was probably already deceased. His grandfather was a priest and a prophet. And so when he was a little boy, he saw them lay the foundation of the temple. And he grew up into those older years of childhood and those teen years of watching nothing happen after they laid the foundation. You'll remember from last week that for 16 years, no more construction. For 16 years, no more progress. And so his, his formative years, his growing up years, were all of those years while they were doing nothing on the temple and were drifting further and further away from God. So God raised up that prophet Haggai. And Haggai was, you know, he was a little bit stern. He would, he would rebuke the people. He challenged them and told them they, they, they were not being blessed by God because they were disobeying God, because they didn't care about the things of God as much as they cared about their own things in life. And so Haggai was this, think of him as an old-fashioned revival preacher who would stomp the pulpit and get in your face and just tell you how it is and what you need to do. Two months after Haggai started preaching in Jerusalem. When Zechariah was a young man, we don't know exactly how old, we just know he was a really young man, God called Zechariah to preach. And his ministry also encouraged them to finish the temple, but Zechariah was different than Haggai. If, 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 if Haggai was the, the hammer, Zechariah was the, the, the soft glove that came in and gave you a pat on the back to encourage you. And they made a good tandem. They made a good team. And while Haggai was focused just on building the temple and, and what was immediately in front of them and the circumstances of that moment, Zechariah looked centuries into the future. He looked to today. Zechariah looked all the way to the second coming of Jesus. And in his message, in his preaching, there are some things that can really encourage us because remember when he was growing up, the people, even though they weren't doing anything on the temple and they had built their homes, life was still hard. And the people were pretty discouraged. They weren't excited about much of anything. And, and Haggai comes along and saying, a lot of your problems and the reason you're discouraged and the reason things are so hard is because you've messed up again. Zechariah comes along and says, hey, I know it's hard and I know you're discouraged. It's not easy. But let me show you some things about your God and what he wants to do in your life. And so his message is really encouraging. And what I want us to do is look at three things we learn from Zechariah that can help us as we go through the years of our life. I don't know whether God's going, I'm 58 years old. I don't know if God will give me another 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, one year, one day. Nobody knows, right? But as we go through the decades of our lives, what do we do through the ups and downs of it? Well, I want to suggest some things that we need to always keep in mind 
that, that Haggai reminds us of. And the first is this. He teaches us the key. Listen, the key to having joy in the midst of whatever challenges life throws at us. I want us to begin in chapter 7 of, of Zechariah. So if you have your Bible, turn to chapter 7 because there's an interesting little story here, okay? And for the sake of time, I'm going to put the verses on the screen and we'll walk through these. But in chapter 7, if you've got your Bible, you can see it. Look at verse 2. Verse 2. The Bible says, and I don't, can you read that up there? It says, now the town of Bethel sent these guys whose names I can't pronounce. The town of Bethel sent some men to seek the favor of the Lord. And so they come pre- speaking to the priest, okay? And, and here's what they ask. Shall I, shall we weep? Shall we continue to weep in the fifth month and abstain, which is a fast, as I have done these many years? Do you know what happened? It was in the fifth month of 587 B.C. when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. And every fifth month in the succeeding years for the 70 years of captivity, on the fifth month, they would have a fast. The people over in Babylon, the Jews in Babylon who were in exile, they would fast. It was kind of like an annual holiday, but it wasn't a happy holiday. They would fast remembering what was. They would fast remembering what they had lost. They would fast thinking about the judgment of God, they would fast repenting for the sins of their ancestors as well as their own sins. Well, now a small remnant has returned and they've at least laid the foundation of the temple and and through the preaching of Haggai, they're stirred up and they're starting to rebuild it. And in the midst of that new energy, these people come to Zechariah, this new prophet, and they ask him, "Are are we to continue having this annual fast? Now, his initial response is interesting. In verses 4 and 5, look at it. He said, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, This is what God told Zechariah to say to them. Say to all the people of the land and to the priest, When you fasted, those 70 years you were fasting, fifth month, seventh month, except all those 70 years, notice this, was it actually for me that you fasted? Now think about that question. You've been doing this every year for 70 years fasting. Here's the question God says I want to ask you. Were you actually doing it for me? What was the reason? What was the motivation? Are you fasting just because you're heartbroken? Are you fasting just because you long for the good old days? What it was like before in Jerusalem? Are you fasting because life is hard and you wish it was easier and better? Are you fasting because you want God maybe to come in and fix things for you? Why why are you fasting? Is it really for me or is it for yourself? Is it for me or or for the fact that I'm, I'm your God? See, we we can do a lot of good religious things, and if we're not careful, our focus gets just a little bit off. And so God tells the prophet to say to them, you need to take a look in the mirror and ask yourself, as you start this journey to, to finding hope and joy in the midst of all the circumstances of life, why are you fasting? Why are you praying? Why are you reading your Bible? Why are you doing this? Are, are you going to find help? Yes, but what's your real deep motivation? Is it me? Is it the fact that you're going to love me no matter what? You're going to serve me no matter what? You're going to worship me no matter what? Is it really me you're seeking? 
Or is it just a, a better life? It's a challenging question. Now, if you jump over to chapter 8, in the middle of the chapter, he directly answers their question after asking them a question. In chapter 8, beginning at verse 18, the word of the Lord of hosts came to him, to Zechariah, said, now here's the rest of the answer. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth month, all these fasts will become what? What church? Joy, gladness, and cheerful feast for the house of Judah. The fe- a feast is the opposite of a fast. Fasting's doing without. Feasting is turkey day. <laughs> Rather than weeping and repenting and mourning, there's going to be joy and gladness. And, and so God says, you don't need to do that anymore. Because if, if, You seek me. If you keep your heart on me, if you keep your eyes on me, if you keep your, if if you're doing all of this for me, not just for yourself, not just so you can have a better life, but you're doing it for me as my child, as my follower. What's the result? Feasting instead of fasting. Joy in the midst of the weeping. And so God says, no, you don't have to do it anymore. But the more important question is, are you going to seek me or just a better life? Because if you want joy, you're not going to find that because you're simply seeking a better life. Because if all you're seeking is a better life, guess what? You're going to have moments when it's better and then other moments when it's not. And and if all of your deep-seated joy is dependent upon your circumstances, guess what? Your joy is going to be like this. Now, now we're not talking about the fact that that those who love Jesus never hurt. We do. But in the midst of all that, God says, I'm going to give you some feasting. I'm going to give you some joy. I'm going to give you some gladness. But only, 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 only if in your heart it's about me and not just about a better life or easier circumstances. It's about me. Now, if you want those kind of blessings from God, there's something you need to do. Something that helps you keep your focus on him and not just on yourself. So go back to chapter 7. And look with me at verse 7. This is before he tells them, yes, you're going to have joy. It's after he asked them to look in the mirror and ask, why are you doing this? Is it for me? The prophet, God through the prophet is saying to them, are these, are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited, prosperous, along with the cities around it? In other words, your ancestors before Babylon destroyed and you know when God sent those prophets, remember Zephaniah? All the prophets we've looked at prior to this, and then the major prophets like you know Jeremiah and Isaiah. Did God not send my his prophets to your fathers, your ancestors? And and when when everything was going well, the city was inhabited and, and the country was prosperous. God sent his preachers and and you pick it up in verse verse 9, thus the Lord of Hosea, God said, here's what those prophets preached, dispense true justice, patience, kindness, compassion, each to his brother. We talked about that in previous weeks, that God, God said, you've got to treat people right. Verse 10, do not oppress the widow, the, you know, the stranger, the poor, don't, ha- don't devise evil in your heart. Isn't that what Jeremiah and all those minor prophets preached to the people of Jerusalem? said, if you don't change your ways, destruction's going to come. Isn't that what God said? But notice what your ancestors, your forefathers did. 
in verse 11. They refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. He's reminding them that that if you're going to do the fasting and, and, and all of this for God and not just for yourself, then you really, you really, you really have to listen to what God says. Because when, when we go through life as Christians, mainly wanting things for ourselves and, and a better life for me, for you, for us, we only hear what we want to hear. We don't always hear what God's really saying. We, we tune out what God says that we don't like or we don't agree with. And so he said, that's what they did. That's what your ancestors did. They made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts sent by his prophets. So he's saying to them, are you doing this for me? Now remember, your fathers had a word from the prophets, but but they they weren't doing anything for God. They were doing everything for themselves, and, and they wouldn't listen to the word of God. They wouldn't listen. Verse 13, and just as he called and they would not listen, so they called and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. He said, God is telling, reminding these people that their ancestors, he sent the prophets and he called them. He called them to repentance. He called them to renew. He called them to faithfulness. He called them to obedience. He called them to to ethics and to morality and to godliness, but they wouldn't listen when God called. But then after the Babylonians came, oh, they started calling out to God. And God said, you wouldn't listen when I spoke to you. I'm not listening now when you speak to me. That was what happened to the ancestors. And so God is saying, if if you're going to do this for me, then you're going to listen. And when you listen, then I listen. And when when that happens, there's blessing and the fasting becomes feasting and and the sorrow becomes joy. But you've got to listen to me. You've got to hear hear my word. And so here's here's the first takeaway. The key to that deep-rooted joy as you go through the ups and downs of life is living for him, not yourself. And listening to what he says, and not just to what you want to hear. Doing it for him, seeking him. Jesus said, love the Lord your God how? All your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, right? I'm going to preach about that in January. We're going to look at each of those phrases. What does it mean to love God? Do this for me, he says. Listen, listen to me. And that's, that's, that's when the joy comes. That's when the, the feasting comes. Because every time we don't listen to God, we, we, we lose that. And Jesus said the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And yes, they were living in hard times. But that didn't mean they could not have joy in the midst of their challenge if they would simply listen. Now here's the second thing I want you to get from Zechariah. God has compassion for all of us. Now, as I said, and if you want to go ahead and turn to Zechariah 1, they, they were living in a challenging time. It, it wasn't as easy as it had been before the destruction of the city. I mean, they were having to rebuild everything. Buildings and the economy, all the infrastructure. I mean, it was a, it was a challenge for them. And so in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 12, the angel of the Lord, he asked a question. 
O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judea with which you have been indignant these 70 years? 70 years ago, Babylon destroyed this place. God, it's been 70 years. When are you going to show compassion on Jerusalem and this country? And God answers that question. Drop down to verse 16. Therefore says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it. The temple will be finished, declares the Lord. And, and uh, uh, verse 17, proclaim a saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities will again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. God said, As it doesn't last forever. The 70 years is up and I'm going to begin blessing Jerusalem and Judea again. And, and there's a beautiful image over in chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. Here's what God says about these, these temporal blessings in Jerusalem. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age. We, we have some people here this morning with walking canes and walkers. You know what he's saying? He said Jerusalem is, is, is once again going to be inhabited by people who've lived a long time. Who've lived a long life. And then, then the next verse, verse, verse 5. Verse, uh, and the streets of the city will be, will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. What's, what's God saying? He said the future is going to be good. You're going to have people of all ages living here, and it's going to be, in some sense, like the good old days. There's going to be kids playing in the streets, and the elderly, it's going to, it's going to be inhabited, and, and God is going to, again, show compassion to Jerusalem, and he's going to, to bless them. Now, here's the thing. You see, most of us, and it's, it's human nature. I get it. It's me too, okay? When we think about the blessings of God, we focus, if we're not careful, just on the here and now, just on the physical just on the temporal. And God is saying to the, the people of Jerusalem, I'm going, to, I'm, going to give you, I'm going to give you some blessings. But it's not just you I'm going to bless. In fact, I'm going to do something in the future that you, you haven't seen yet. I'm going to bless the entire world. Look at chapter 2 of Zechariah. Chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. He says to them right now in this present moment, I want you to sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. That's Jerusalem. For behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Verse 11. And many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become what? You know what he's pointing to? Beyond that moment. When people from every, not only nation as we think of with, with borders, but he's really talking about ethnic groups, every people of every race, of every stripe on this planet. He said, yeah, I'm going to bless Jerusalem and, and you're going to live here and the city's going to prosper again, but I need you to look up at something bigger and better and more important than that because not only are there going to be these tangible physical blessings in the here and now, but down the road there's going to be greater blessings as all over this world. People who today are not my people, as Hosea said, are going to become my people. Do you know who that's talking about? You. You're not a Jew. You don't live in Jerusalem, but you're part of his people. 
And, and Zechariah, in answering their questions, is saying, yes, God's going to bless Israel, but it's bigger and greater and more important than just these temporal blessings. There's something else coming. And, and, and he says, listen, the greatest blessing is not children playing in the streets of Jerusalem. The greatest blessing is not the elderly with their canes living there again. It's not the restoration of the city and the country. He said the greatest blessing, Zechariah said this. Listen to this. 500 years before Jesus, Zechariah said the greatest blessing is Jesus. As you're going through life with all of its its ups and downs, the greatest blessing, the one that we tend to forget is our greatest blessing, the greatest blessing is The greatest expression of God's compassion is Jesus Christ. I only have time to show you one one example, but look at chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, and shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Now notice this. Behold... Your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with what, church? Salvation. Humble and mounted on a what? Even a coat, the foal of a donkey. (laughs) Do you know what uh, Jesus did when he entered Jerusalem? On Palm, you know, when when he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday before his crucifixion? Matthew 21, verses 4 and 5, look at this. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. That's that's what Matthew wrote. What prophet is he talking about? Zechariah. What you just read. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a what? On a donkey, on a colt. You see, Zechariah. God enabled Zechariah to look five centuries into the future and see the coming Messiah. Zechariah is filled with messianic passages. Pointing to Jesus Christ. This is just one example. There are others. We don't have time, but there are others in this book. It's just one of them. And he's pointing to that future day. Now, 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 now you need to understand this. Because we're getting ready to see the passage that I think is so powerful. They, they had just started rebuilding the temple after 16 years of inactivity. Most of the country was still in ruins. Life wasn't easy for them at this moment. And they wanted to know, what do we do? They wanted life to be better. Makes sense. I would want it to be better than their circumstances, wouldn't you? And God says, I'm going to make it better. It's not going to be perfect, but I'm going to make it better. I'm going going to be with you. I'm going to have compassion on you. And I'm going to bless you in the here and now. But he's also saying, listen, can you just look up a little bit? Can you, just, can you just look up a little bit and see something bigger than just yourself? Do it for me. Are you doing this for me? Can you look up just a little bit and see the world and all the people in it and all of their needs and all of their hurts and all of their lostness? Can you, can you look up just a little bit and look into the future and, and not just focus on the now, but, but look down the road because I've got an eternal plan and I'm moving everything in the direction of that plan. Can you look down the road a little bit and understand that all of this, all of this is for me? 
Zechariah 3. Now we come to my passage. The first seven verses, the prophet is talking to a man named Joshua. We saw him last week in Haggai. Joshua is the priest at that moment in time. And he says some things that to Joshua, about Joshua as the representative of the people. But then he says the truth is, everything that he's saying to Joshua and the people of that day is just a symbol of what God's going to do for everybody down the road. So watch, with, watch, watch, watch. What does he say to Joshua? You've got to get this. Verse 1 of chapter 3. And then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and standing... And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So, so God lets Zechariah, he, he paints this picture. Here's Joshua, your high priest, the religious leader of the people. And right beside him is Satan. Accusing Joshua and accusing the people. And every time Satan accuses, it's to say, you're no good. You're a sinner. You have no faith. You're no good. Isn't that what he did to Job? Job won't trust you if you let me have at him. In verse 2, the Lord rebuked Satan. We're going to come back to that. Verse 3, Joshua again. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. A picture of his of the sinfulness of the nation, the the dirty clothing representing the unrighteousness and the filth and the sin of, of, of Judah and Jerusalem, the sin that had led to the destruction of the city, the sin that had caused them for 16 years to do nothing. And Satan's standing there, look at that, look at that. I told you, I told you, they're sinners. I told you, they're no good. I told you, they'll, they'll, they'll fail you. I told you, I told you. But in verse 4, he, this angel, spoke and said to those who were standing before him, before Joshua, remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you in feast robes. He said, I'm taking off all those dirty garments and I'm dressing you up in clothes fit for a feast, for a festival, for a party, for a banquet, for a celebration. All clean and beautiful. Never touched by sin. Verse 5, put a clean turban on his head. And they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while, while the angel of the Lord was standing by. So you get the image. A picture of God's forgiveness. Israel, you're forgiven. What your ancestors did, what you've done, I've forgiven you. And there's clean clothing. But that's not where the message stops. Verse 8, he's speaking to Joshua the priest. He says, now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends, all the other citizens of Jerusalem, listen. Your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are a symbol. I'm doing this. But it's, but it's bigger than you think. It's what, what, what I've just done for you by dressing you and the people of Israel in clean clothing, forgiveness, it's a symbol. It's a picture of something bigger and better. 
the end of verse 8, for I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. The branch is one of the titles of the Messiah. In the following verse, he's the stone. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Throughout Zechariah, there are all these analogies, all of these terms, messianic terms, that he uses in their historical context that are pointing to the coming Messiah that the Gospels and the New Testament claim were descriptors of Jesus Christ. Joshua, you're a symbol. Me dressing you in these beautiful, clean clothes, it's a symbol of something bigger. And now the verse I just can't get away from, verse 9. For behold, the stone, the stone, another reference to Jesus, that I have set before Joshua, before the high priest. And on, on one stone are seven eyes. And, and seven is the, the, the divine number. It's the number of perfection. Eyes that see everything, that, that have complete intelligence and knowledge. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts. And notice this. Now here it is. Listen. I will remove the iniquity of that land What does it say? What? In the Hebrews, in one day. In one day. What day was that? Church, what day was that? What day was that? It was the cross. In one day. In one day. Jesus, who Hebrew says is the great high priest, greater than Joshua, in one day, the Bible says he died once for all. In one day, I'm going to dress humanity in clean clothes. In one day, I'm going to make atonement for the sins. in a, in a little over a month, I'll be 59. There's a lot of sin in 59 years. Some of you are in your 70s and 80s and perhaps someone in the room even older. A lot of sin in eight decades of living. It's been 2,500 years since Zechariah spoke these words. A lot of sin in 2,500 years on this planet. And God says, in one day, in just one day, I'm going to make forgiveness available for all of it. I love that. That encourages me. That in one day, in one act, Jesus... Did all that. And so he says in verse 10. In that day. In us. Declares the Lord of hosts. Every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. It's going back to all these nations and all these races and all these different ethnic groups will be what? My people. So i got to wrap this up. what's, What's all of this saying? Do you remember Romans 8, verses 31 and following? Let's look at it here. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? When Joshua, the high priest, was standing there before the angel of the Lord, who was standing beside him accusing him? Who? And who's the one that says, you're no good, you're nobody. God can't forgive you. God can't love you. You can't be any different. Your past has to determine who you are today. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. God says, Satan, I don't care what you say. And that's the reason back in chapter 3, when Satan was accusing Joshua twice in verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, I rebuke you. I rebuke you because these are my children and it's up to me if I forgive them or not. Not you. And then one day on the cross, Jesus said, I love you. I have compassion for you. And if you'll let me, I'll I'll take off those dirty garments and I'll put on clean ones. I'll take the iniquity, the sin of your life, and I'll forgive it and wash it away. And I'll make you pure and holy. That's what he did for us on Calvary. And it it is all available to you. All you have to do is, is let your life be what? For him and not yourself. And Jesus said, if anyone follows me, he has to take up his cross daily. Let your life be for him and not yourself. And in doing so, you'll find some good things in the here and now, but you'll find some even better things in the future. And you'll be part of something bigger than you. You'll be part of what God's doing to bless this whole world. He said, Israel, it's not just about you. It's not just about rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. But it's about the fact that through you, I'm going to send the Messiah. And I'm going to bless the whole of humanity. See, when you live for yourself, you're living too small. But when you live for him, you live for a higher purpose in the midst of your life. And when you do that, there's some joy and there's some feasting. And so listen to what he says. Don't make the mistake of their ancestors. Listen to what he says and obey them. Let's stand.